Hello and shalom. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I'm your host, Joe Amon. We got a great show ahead, so buckle up and hang on. Here we go. Well, hello, hello. Shalom, shalom, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I am your host, Joe Amon, coming to you from a recovering southwest Louisiana. I just want to say, hey, it's great to be back after a couple-week hiatus. um, We were dealing with the aftermath of Hurricane Laura, and uh, so we are back. We took a couple weeks off just simply because we didn't have power uh, we were trying to get things uh, squared away around here, and so we'll talk about that a little bit more. But I want to say hey to everybody who's we- who's listening. Thank you guys for being patient with us uh, while we had a couple reruns over the last few weeks. If it's your first time joining uh, Image Bearers Radio, hi, my name is Joe. <laughs> I pastor uh, Out of Ashes Ministries in DeRitter, Louisiana, uh, which is a great Yeshua-centered uh, Torah-pursuant family that uh, meets every Shabbat uh, at 10 a.m., uh, Central every Saturday, and uh, we get the chance to do this awesome conversation called Image Bearers Radio every week, uh, or as much every week as we as we uh, we can without natural disasters interfering. But we do this every week, and um, it's all about how we become better image bearers, how we become the image bearers of God. So if it's your first time listening and hanging out with us, then welcome. I'm so glad that you're here. Uh, for all of you who are longtime listeners and faithful weekly listeners, thank you guys so much. For, um, for tuning in and for being a part of the conversation. Uh, thank you for all the emails and calls and messages and all the, all the things, all the support, uh, continuing the conversation and being interested in, in what we're trying to, uh, trying to communicate and what we're trying to develop here. I really, really, really appreciate it. So if you're looking for a, um, a Sabbath congregation, a place to join in, uh, and you're in the southwest Louisiana area, then we'd love to have you come visit, hang out with us. We start at 10 o'clock Central. We have about an hour and a half, two-hour service, and then we have Oneg afterwards where we eat and we fellowship together and build relationships, so it's a wonderful time. If you're outside of the Louisiana area, the drivable area, um, then I want to invite you to join us on Facebook, uh, on YouTube, or on our website, outofashesministries.org, and uh, you can join us there. Jump in the comments, say hey, tell us where you're from, all that kind of good stuff. Uh, be really great. We love to hear where people are joining us from. Uh, it's awesome, awesome uh, opportunity we have here with technology and stuff. You know, I know social media and everything gets a bad rap, but man, it's really, uh, it really is, has a lot of positives to it as well. So I want to thank you guys all for the prayers and concerns, um, for the donations, for you know the the, the messages and all uh, as we dealt with Hurricane Laura. So if you don't know, I know that the national media has not covered this really at all. Uh, since after it passed through, um, but Louisiana uh, received a great big wallop about two weeks ago uh, with Hurricane Laura. It came on shore as a Category Four, uh, high Category Four, low Category Five uh, hurricane, which means uh, winds, you know, in the 150 to 100, you know, 140 to 150 mile an hour range, uh, and storm surge, and all of those kinds of things. 
uh, where we are personally, we are on the ministry. We're about uh, we're about ninety miles from the coast, eighty ninety miles from the coast, uh, and we still up here had winds clocked at about one hundred and thirty five miles an hour. So usually when hurricanes like this come up. Um, they kind of hit the land and they start to turn down. You know, they start to spin down. So by the time they get up here, they're not as bad. We had Hurricane Rita 15 years ago. Remember the sisters, Katrina and Rita? Um, Katrina got all the, the, the press because of New Orleans. Um, but we had Hurricane Rita here, and it was a dangerous storm. It was rough. It was over 100 miles an hour winds, 120 mile an hour winds. Um, but when Hurricane Rita hit the, hit the shore, the coast, it kind of spun down, lost a lot of its energy. And so... It, you know, by the time it got up to central Louisiana and up to north Louisiana, it had kind of weakened a little bit. It was mostly just a rain event. Hurricane Laura, on the other hand, was a really fast-moving storm. And so by the time it hit the coast, it just rocketed up the uh, Texas-Louisiana border on into north Louisiana and then across uh, over to the north and to the northeast. And um, we, we Deritter, where we are, was right in the, in the sweet spot, uh, if you want to call it that, the north um, the northeastern uh, quadrant of the eye wall of the hurricane is always the worst. It's always the worst uh, wind. It's usually the worst storm surge because all that wind is pushing, uh, pushing against, and you have the added uh, wind speed because of the storm itself is moving. And so um, it crossed us about 3, 4 o'clock uh, that Thursday morning, and um, they were telling us, be prepared to be without power for four to six weeks. And uh, most most of this area got online within two weeks. So I just want to say a humongous, I can't say enough, um, shout out and thank you to all of the linemen and the electrical volu- you know, electric, electric company volunteers that came in uh, from uh, 20-something states, I think, uh, Missouri, Georgia, Carolinas, Texas, Arkansas, Alabama, Mississippi, all, I mean, just all over the place uh, to help get us back up and running. Uh, south of us, where the storm was was actually worse, they are saying, or they were saying, maybe eight to ten weeks without power. And uh, talking to some friends down there, they're already pockets starting to get power. Which uh, two weeks without power is rough. You know, going on three weeks without power is rough. Don't don't get me wrong, um, but it is much better than the forecasted outcome. So thanks to all the linemen, all the, the the power company workers that came in. Also, thank you to all you guys who sent donations and uh, whether monetary or those of you that brought donations and donated actual goods. I just I'm overwhelmed. Uh, last week, um, since OAM is kind of a smaller ministry, we wrapped up our you know kind of uh, supply stuff. Uh, we were not intending to be a distribution center, um, but we ended up being one thanks to all the outpouring that 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 you guys did. And uh, so we, we did for about two weeks, and we wrapped up our, just because we simply don't have the manpower, you know, to, to sustain something like that. But we did, a, we did a, a great service in the community. We helped a lot of people. We moved several hundred pounds of food and paper goods and gas and generators and air conditioners and all that kind of stuff. It was wonderful. It was amazing. Um, but at the end of our kind of our efforts, I, I, I spent one day, I spent about 45 minutes on the phone with churches within, a, you know, a, an hour or so radius of us saying, hey, I got, you know, I got extra stuff. Can I bring it to you to give out to the community? And, um, and every church said, like, no, please. We, we've got so much stuff we can't even give out what we have, uh, which is a good problem. It's, it's, a, it's not even a problem. It's a great thing to have because um, it, it just shows the generosity of people. And uh, the, 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 the religious uh, organizations here, the body of Messiah, 
you know, we, we can talk about how church has doctrines wrong and church has this wrong and church does that wrong. And, and a lot of that may be true. But I'll tell you what, um, the body of Messiah came together during this, this, uh, you know, this chaos and this destruction. And churches were serving hot meals every day for, you know, for the last two solid weeks, uh, you know, giving out water and food and cleaning supplies and clothes and baby stuff. And just it's just been absolutely amazing. And um, I, I, I really have done a lot of introspection during this time. Uh, and so this is not regular kind of IBR stuff, but I just want to visit with you for a few minutes about some of these things. You know, we there's a phrase that I like to use. I heard it from, I can't even remember who, uh, but a phrase that, that goes, you know, it's about um, orthopraxy over orthodoxy. And so, you know, we can believe a lot of different things. We can believe different calendars. We can believe, you know, different, different you know, we, even about Torah, we can believe, well, it doesn't apply or it does apply or whatever. The bottom line is that I saw uh, several communities of churches, big cities, small towns, rural villages, I mean even really, really small. I saw dozens of, of churches that, that I in my, in my past would have looked at and said, well, you know, they don't even know God because they don't know Torah. I looked at them and I saw them fulfilling Torah by taking care of people even before they took care of their own homes. Several of these, you know, pastors and stuff, I know their homes had damage. Their yards were full of trees where they, you know, they had to cut themselves out of their driveways and stuff to get out. But the minute the storm passed, they were at their churches, wrangling volunteers, getting in supplies. I mean, 18 wheeler loads of supplies. And, and, and you, you see the body in action. And so, you know, I had this thought, if, if the body as a whole, if, if, if the, the following of God, if the people of the God of Abraham... If we lived in more of a, a, a relief mode or a chaos mode like mentality, not that we're chaotic, but that we understand the chaos around us. If we lived in that emergency, uh, you know, that disaster relief type of mentality, folks, we would actually be the body of Messiah. We would actually be the church. We get so complacent and we, especially in those of us who, you know, who love Torah and who who, who try to, you know, try to, 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 to follow the commands and the feasts. And all. I, I, that's me. I, I, that's where we are. And that's, that's, it's supposed to be that way. We're supposed to do those things. However, we, if we're not careful, we get caught in this thing where it's so much about knowledge. And don't get me wrong. I, I love knowledge. I love studying. I love learning Hebrew. I love, you know, I love reading different scholars and rabbis and, and Christian, you know, scholars and all these different things. I love that. I love books and I love learning. But we can get so wrapped up in knowledge that we forget to be people of action. And, and it, it, really, it really showed me this last couple of weeks during this thing the, the, the great chasm between the, the, the church, typical Christianity, the church world, and kind of the messianic Torah observant community. And I don't mean just to slam anybody or, or anything. It's just an observation. But, you know, churches got supplies in from all over the country, from other churches, not even their denomination. You know, I mean, you have Mennonites at a Baptist church helping. You've got Pentecostals at a Catholic church helping. You know, you got whatever. It just all of those lines fell down. All those boundaries fell. And, and the body of Messiah actually came together. The sad thing is that I, I, there wasn't a lot of response from the Messianic community. 
Um, there wasn't a lot of response for, as far as teachers and ministries go. Now, I know there are not a lot of big messianic ministries, and, and I get that. Again, this is not like, you know, to really, you know, pound anybody in particular, but we, in the, in the Torah Observant community, we simply don't have the network and the structure that is there in kind of, you know, traditional Christianity. In a way, that's great, right? In a way, that has a lot of positives. But when it comes to things like coordination to, to help and reach out to people, it really can be a challenge. So I just want to encourage you um, that, you know, maybe you didn't have anything to give. You know, our, our, we have wildfires now on the West Coast and, and Northwest, and we have a lot of friends uh, and, you know, and our, our ministry family that's out there. And, and we're praying for you guys, and we love you guys. And, and uh, man, you know, let, let's, let's give there. Uh, and if you can't give, pray for them. Be praying for them. Reach out to people you know and check on them and say, hey, I'm thinking about you and you know, just want to make sure you're okay. That does so much to someone who has lost a house or had to evacuate or whatever the case may be. Um, you know, If you can give, give. Do something. Uh, if you can send supplies, if you're close enough to send supplies, bring supplies to, to a ministry or to a person's house you know, for a family or, or, or an elderly person or, or somebody with, with young kids and, and, and be active. The, the knowledge that we seek and the knowledge that we have as, as Torah-pursuant believers is no good unless we are engaged in tikkun olam, right? The restoration of the world, the, the restoring of the earth. There, there's, there's no amount of knowledge that can actually, that, that is good unless it is put into practice, unless it is manifest in physical activity. And so I, I just want that to be an encouragement uh, for me. There's, there's a lot of things that I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about and praying through as the Father's showing me through all this stuff um, that I want to address in later episodes and, and during our Shabbat fellowships. But uh, again, just want to say thank you. Uh, everything is coming online slowly but surely. Things are getting back to some sense of normalcy. Still a lot of people without power almost three weeks out. Um, but we're doing our best to reach out to them and to, uh, to be a light wherever we can. So uh, thank you again for, for all of that. And uh, let's pray together, and then we will get into this week's episode. Father, our Father in heaven, Avinu Shabbat Shemayim, we bless you and we thank you for this time to be together. God, we want to be your image in the earth. We want people to see you as they see us live humbly before you. Bless this time we have together as we dive into your word in Yeshua's name. So welcome back, guys. So thank you so much for always, you know, spending a little bit of time, a few moments just to kind of prepare ourselves and set ourselves. So we have been, as we've been a couple of weeks off, we're going to do kind of a quick refresher for the rest of this segment. And then we'll jump into um, the last group that we need to talk about before we get actually into the Gospels. Uh, and that is the Pharisees. So what have we talked about so far? So just to kind of re, you know, reground ourselves and figure out where we are. We have been talking about the silent years. And so the silent years, that intertestamental period uh, between, if, if you're in the Christian Bible, the end of Malachi and the beginning of Matthew, 
uh, that blank page in the middle. Uh, if your Bible has more of a Hebraic kind of order, it would be the end of Second Chronicles and Matthew. Um, this time in history where growing up, I was taught it was just it was the silent years, right? God was silent. There were no prophets speaking, um, and this not a lot was happening. And so you can read the end of Malachi. And then you jump straight to Matthew. And you don't really need to worry about what's going on in the middle um, because, well, frankly, if we don't know and if we do know, it's really not important because it's like it's a bunch of Jewish stuff, right? <laughs> Which was never explicitly said, but the, the important thing was Messiah coming on the scene. And, and it is the important thing. But the world that Messiah came into, that he was, that he was born into, um, is, is very deep and very, uh, very complicated. And, and I believe... Uh, as I believe Galatians 4 tells us, he came at that time, at, at this particular time, the appointed time. Why not any other time in history? Why at that time? Well, I believe whenever we, we really dive into the intertestamental period and see what was going on in the land of Israel uh, with the Jewish people and, and with the temple and with all these things, we, we get a, a really a full, uh, fuller picture of what the Gospels are speaking to, what Yeshua himself was speaking to and what he was doing, the culture that he moved in and out of, uh, the people groups, which is really important uh, in the land of Israel as he traveled around, as he talked to different people. Um, and, and so we looked at the, uh, the, the end of the exile, the return from the exile, and Israel is back in their land right after the Babylonian exile. Their home, uh, many came back, many did not, many stayed in Babylon. Uh, and, and so you have this, this thing where you're home, but it's not really home. It's, it's, it's not, it's never was the glory of the Davidic kingdom. And so you have this, this, uh, this man that comes on the scene or these people that come on the scene, Alexander the great. All right. And he has a euangelion, Alexander, the Macedonian, he has a euangelion and that is the, the gospel of Greece. Right and Greece is promoted through this doctrine of Hellenism or this worldview of Hellenism, and and Hellenism gives the world. Uh, Alexander basically says, "Look, we've conquered all this territory, right? The most territory ever conquered by a by a, a country or by a nation by a king, uh, and we've conquered all of this. But it's really really expensive to leave armies everywhere, standing army to to cover this whole thing. So." The Hellenistic doctrine and philosophy, although it didn't begin with Alexander, really was commercialized and, and, and really expanded under Alexander the Great. And it was basically, Alexander said, if you give me four things, uh, then I'll, I'll rule the world. I don't need a big standing army. Give me four things. And if I can control these four things, everybody will, will become Greece, right? The whole Grecian uh, euangelion or gospel, uh, good news, will permeate through all of our conquered lands. And those four areas are, are education, uh, health care, entertainment, and athletics. And Alexander said, if you can give me those things, if I can control those things, I can rule the entire world. So this euangelion, this, this gospel of Hellenism, right, basically it, it, it took on a cultural, uh, uh, instead of just a military occupation, it began to be a cultural occupation. And so out of that, when, 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 Alexander the Great dies, like every great man does. The, the, the Grecian uh, uh, territory that they had conquered, uh, there was a lot of infighting, right? A lot of stuff, and there's all these generals fighting over, over territory and power and all this. And so you have Israel stuck in the middle of a battle between the Seleucids uh, in the north and the Ptolemies in Egypt, in the south in Egypt. 
And so, you know, Seleucus, very, uh, well, Ptolemy, actually, let's do Ptolemy first in the south, very much, his kind of thing was like, well, I'm not going to make you be Greek, but I'm going to make it really hard not to be Greek. Um, so I'm going to put, you know, the culture around you, and, and eventually you'll want to be Greek. Later on, Seleucus came in and said, no, you're going to be Greek by the edge of the sword. And that's where we have the uh, Maccabean Revolt, right? The, Has, the, the Hasmonean Revolt. And so you have this, this, all this turmoil that's going on in the intertestamental period. Now, what, it's really important, I think, as we think about this stuff, and as you think about these things and how it applies today, like, well, what does that have to do with me? Well, think about cultural shifts, right? Right now in America, we're going through a cultural shift, um, not just as it pertains to the discussion on racism um, and policing, but in the last, you know, 40 years, uh, we've gone through cultural shifts as it has to do with sexuality and, and, and all these different things that, um, that slowly and surely creep into our society and they become normalized. And to a point, they become normalized to those of us or those people who would have found them abhorrent at their first, uh, you know, when they first came up, if that makes sense. And we, we, it's, it's kind of the frog in the pot thing, right? You, you know, just the bowl, the water heats up slowly and slowly and slowly. And, and th- this is what culture does. This is what cultural change does and cultural shifts do. And so you have Israel caught in the middle of these these two Greek generals, and they want Israel because Israel is the center of the universe. They want the temple in Jerusalem. They want that power, that 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 power center, right? And so out of that, out of that struggle, the Jewish people have to figure out how to respond. How they're back in the land, right? They've had an incredible, miraculous revolt uh, due to the Hasmon- Hasmoneans. And now they're trying to figure out how to still be the people of God. How do we be the covenant people with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? And how do we take the commission given in Bereshit, right, to to bear his image? How do we realize the Abrahamic covenant? How do we realize the golden age of David? How do we get back there? How how do we represent, uh, you know, how do we represent Hashem in our world, in the midst of all of this stuff that's happening. And out of that discussion and out of that fight came kind of five major responses within Judaism, an, an inner and inside conversation. And we talked about one of those being the Sadducees, which are descendants of the Hasmoneans, uh, which come from the priestly line of Zadok, right? The Kohen Gadol, the line of Zadok. Uh, they control the temple. They buy into Hellenism full force. They still wear their Judaism very well, and they they are they are still have a positive that they're, they're they are the priests, they are the protectors and the, the the guardians of the temple, and yet they're completely corrupt with a whole religious mafia and and all, and all the you know a hit squad and all the same stuff. So you have the Sadducees. So when Yeshua is talking to the Sadducees, we have to know who they are and what they're about. Secondly, you have the Hellenists, right? Or the the uh, Herodians, excuse me. You have the Herodians who are not priests, but they live in that Hellenistic culture. The positive for them is that they are within the culture that they're living. They are living in, they have relationships with Greeks. They, they enjoy Greek art. They can have those conversations, and yet they have the really big danger of idolatry, right? So then we talked about the Essenes. The Essenes are uh, some probably priests, 
that just basically said, you know what, we're wiping our hands of this corrupt temple Sadducean thing, and we're going out into the desert. We're going to completely separate ourselves because when, when Hashem returns or when Messiah comes, he's going to split Jerusalem wide open, and we don't want to be anywhere around it. We are going to preserve the way. We're going to be the children of light, and we're going to preserve the way. We're going to know the way, walk the way, teach the way, and preserve it. And so when everything starts to fall apart, then people will have to come to us to, to understand and to know and to find the right path. And so we talked about the Essenes, right? So the positive is that they are, they are purity and their, their devoutness, their piety, and yet they're completely on the opposite end of the Herodians, let's say. They are segregated from community. And then lastly, we talked about the Zealots. The Zealots believe that redemption comes, so the Essenes believe that redemption comes through separating yourself. The Zealots believe that redemption comes through redemptive violence. So if you see a Roman, you kill them. You, they, 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 were, they were aggressive, they were people of warfare. And so the positive is their zealousness. And frankly, the negative is that God doesn't do things that way. And so you have this inner Jewish conversation. On the next side of the break, in the next segment, we're going to talk about my favorite group, the Pharisees. And we're going to look at how they approach these things right after the break. We'll be right back. Shalom, everybody, and welcome back to the second segment in this episode of Image Bearers Radio. So glad to have you guys with us. So we are talking about these five Jewish responses to Hellenism and to the changing culture around, around the people of Israel. This should not be anything that's really foreign to us, frankly. Um, as, as the church or as believers, as the body of Messiah, we are constantly, we're constantly reacting to cultural changes. We're constantly seeing things in, in the news and politics, uh, in our communities that are, uh, that are maybe more progressive more, or more, more liberal uh, culturally. And we're constantly comparing those things to Scripture, right? We're constantly trying to find the, our place in Scripture and the standard, right, of Scripture and of holiness as the people of God. Maybe one of the, maybe one of the, the, the bigger differences between the way Judaism treated this, first century Judaism treated this problem, and maybe we as Christians did, or do, is that we as Christians tend to look at the, uh, the homosexual community. We tend to look at the homosexual community, commu- homosexual community excuse me, and say, well, look, this is what our Bible says about homosexuality. Or we look at you know the the, the you know infidelity and, and people that are that don't see any problem with infidelity, and we say, but this is what our Bible says about infidelity to you who don't believe the Bible, right? Who are not or maybe not don't believe it, are not concerned with the biblical standard. We look outside of ourselves generally because we say, well, we're we're right, you know, I mean, we're righteous, and we you know we're not you know, homosexuals, or we don't, we don't cheat on our spouses, or we don't, you know, blah, whatever, whatever 
you want to use as an example. We don't do that, but we have to look at everybody else who doesn't use the same standard as we do and say, well, you shouldn't either, right? And the way that the first century Jewish community addressed this is a lot different in that they looked inside. They looked inward and they said, how are we, how are we going to adapt and, and, and preserve our heritage in light of everything that's changing around us? Things may change around us, but how do we stay the light? How, how do we, how do we hasten the coming of Messiah? How do we bring the kingdom to earth? How, how do we preserve the ways for whenever God gets, you know, gets, gets done with all of this, this chaos? How do we provide a remnant? How do we, you know, that, that's the conversation they're having. And it's not that it's in, it's not that it's exclusive to anyone else. It's, it's that they are asking the hard questions of their own communities and their own selves. We didn't talk about one major institution uh, that arose out of, actually out of Babylon called synagogue. We spent a whole episode on synagogue, a fascinating study about synagogue. Because we look at modern Jewish synagogues and we, you know, we know what we know or we don't know what we don't know and don't care to find out. And, and so we tend to maybe be a little ignorant towards synagogue, which is not a slam. It just is what it is. Most of us didn't grow up in synagogue. We don't know what the culture is like. Um, and, and yet a, a study of synagogue is, and, and how it has progressed over the years is really, really fascinating. And so within the, their own synagogue in the first century, let's say, they're having these conversations. And, it, and it's, a, it's a, a wrestling with, the, with the, the word, with Torah. It's a wrestling with the prophets. It's a wrestling with the writings. It's wrestling with, with the oral traditions and the, you know, the, the culture of, of Judaism that is changing. And, and all these things are happening inside. So it's an internal battle more than a, hey, Romans, you guys need to get saved and you need to line up with our Bible. Pfft, the Romans don't care. They, they got their own thing going. Right. And, and, and so you do have some of that crossover, but that's not the focus where, where Christianity tends to be more outward focused. Judaism's tended to be more ended in inward focused, And I would say that was probably, that would probably be accurate even to this day. So as we look at these different groups, how does Messiah come? How does the kingdom come? How does redemption come? And all those kinds of things. The Essenes said, we're going to go out and we're going to preserve the zealots said, we're just going to kill our way out of it. We're going to divine violence. Uh, redemptive violence is how it's going to happen. And then we have this fifth group, the Pharisees. So the Pharisees and zealots uh, are really linked together in one group called the Hasidim, the Hasidim, the pious ones. Um, and, and they are kind of two parts of this group of Hasidim. Uh, you have the zealots and you have the Pharisees, the Prushim. And it's really important that this is just my, like this absolutely just wrecked my world when I started finding this stuff out and, and realizing this. So where are the Sadducees kind of centered? Like sure, there's Sadducees all over the nation of Israel, but where their, their kind of central, you know, centrality is, is in Jerusalem. Where do you think the Herodians are centered? They're centered in and around Jerusalem. Where are the Essenes? Well, the Essenes, we believe, are like Qumran and, and out in the desert, right? Segregated from, from population. Where are the Zealots? Well, the Zealots, uh, we talked about Gamla. You remember our conversation on Gamla? That's been like three weeks ago, I guess now. But Gamla in the north of Israel. Gamla is situated northeast of the Sea of Galilee, right? So it's, it's in Galilee, Golan Heights, that area up in the northern part of Israel. 
where are the Pharisees? Well, surely there are Pharisees in Jerusalem, right? We see Yeshua interacting with Pharisees in Jerusalem. Now, a lot of times they were there for the feasts, but most Pharisees, the largest kind of uh, conglomeration of Pharisees is in the city of Capernaum and surrounding areas, kind of known as the religious triangle, um, right? So you have uh, up north, the north part of the Sea of Galilee, the Galil, you have Capernaum, you have Chorazin, uh, you have Gennesaret, um, you have Magdala, uh, you have Tiberias, which is, is, you know, further south down the coast of the Sea of Galilee, the shore of the Sea of Galilee, which is Tiberias is actually uh, where one of the Roman uh, governors set up his kind of his center of power. Um, but also uh, uh, next to Chorazin, just across, you have Bethsaida uh, and you have Gamla up in that in that area. And so Pharisees are, are, are centralized in the Galilee. Now that's, to me, that's absolutely mind-blowing and, and huge and awesome and all the other words you could use to describe it because this is where Yeshua lived, right? This is where Yeshua did most of his ministry is in the Galilee. So you have these Pharisees. Now, we, we talked about um, kind of Herodian structures and Herodian homes and how they were very ornate and, uh, and, and you know, beautiful mosaics and, and even some, you know, imagery of either Greek mythology, uh, Egyptian mythology, all these different kinds of things as you got further into their homes. Uh, Herodian cities, you know, where their sidewalks and streets were paved with mosaic tiles and were just very nice, very opulent, a sign of the culture, right? It's like if you, if you, if you live in Hollywood, um, you're going to see a certain type of home, a certain standard of home in most neighborhoods, right? Whereas if you live in a rural area like we do, you're going to see a different style of home, you know, pasture land, farms, farmhouses, uh, you know, those kind of things. Le- much less opulent, still nice, still, you know, beautiful homes, but much, much different than what you're going to see in a, you know, a large metropolitan, you know, Manhattan or Hollywood, L.A. kind of, kind of landscape. And so in, in the north in Galilee, things were very, very different. Things were very, very different in, 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 a, in a focus sense. The, the Pharisees were not focused on opulence and, uh, you know, and mosaics and, and, and tile and artistry and all these things. As much as you look at Galilean synagogues, you look at Galilean streets, Galilean villages, they are mostly kind of insulas where couple families, three or four families may have lived together and they shared, you know, back and forth uh, in, a, in a kind of a little like compound kind of situation with an open court in the middle, uh, multiple story buildings, you know, and homes and things, multi-generational homes uh, and those kinds of things. You're going to see like cobblestone uh, roadways uh, and sidewalks and things. And then uh, Galilee and homes are going to be very simple. Uh, they're going to be very functional, but very simple. Galilean synagogues, you're not going to see the opulence necessarily that you would in a, in a Herodian synagogue or, you know, in a, in a Sajansian uh, synagogue. They're going to be very functional, very practical, but very simple. The, the Pharisee view of how Messiah comes and how we bring redemption, the Pharisaic view is complete obedience, complete obedience. So, the, the, the idea is to, to study. The Pharisees also, also I mean, they, they were very, very heavy on, on study. Capernaum is, by some scholars, is like the Harvard or Yale 
of Phariseeic Judaism. It is where, where most of the scrolls are concentrated. The synagogue in Capernaum is absolutely gorgeous. Again, not super ornate, but absolutely beautiful and large, right? Large study room, which we talked about in our synagogue se- uh, 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 segment, our synagogue episode, excuse me. And it's very, it's, it's very nice, very large. And Capernaum is this hustling, bustling center of Pharisaic Judaism. It's where you sent your kids, right? If you wanted them to study under the rabbis, you sent them to Capernaum. It is the, the, the precipice of Pharisaic learning. And, and it is a study of the text for complete obedience sake. Messiah comes when we all get our act together and, and, and God will drive Rome out of Israel and we will have the, the Davidic dynasty again when we can just be obedient, when we can be in a place where God honors our obedience, when we've cleaned up our act enough, right, that God will come and he will set everything straight because of our obedience, now, this is really, really important, and I want you to, again, draw this into our modern concept, right? How, how do, I mean, those of you that have been in different, you know, from different denominational backgrounds, I, I love to hear those stories and how people grew up and, and where people come from, because it, it sheds so much light on kind of how we think about the world and how we think about God and how we are supposed to realize the promises of Messiah in our lives, right? So I come from a Baptist background. And, and the, the Baptist doctrine that I was taught was very, in a way, it was very pharisaical. I think if you tell any Baptist preacher that, he would probably, you know, he'd probably slap you. <laughs> but in a, in a sense, knowing what we know about Phariseeism, it was very pharisaical in the sense that it's about obedience. It's about, a, you know, a right heart. It's, a, it's about always checking yourself, always making sure that, you know, your motives are pure and that your heart is pure and that you're doing the right things. And, and it's a lot about obedience. Uh, I spent some time in, in Pentecostal circles, right? Well, how do, how do you, as a Pentecostal, how do you realize the, the, the glory of God? How do you realize the kingdom of God? Well, it does have a lot to do with obedience. They're very, very strong on obedience to a Pentecostal standard, which they find in Scripture, right, which you may or may not agree with. But it's, it's, about, but it's also about the, it's a really heavy emphasis on the spirit, right? And, and, and in, even in charismatic, charismaticism, excuse me, charismatics, <laughs> um, very em- high emphasis on, on obedience, yes, but on the moving of the gifts. You have to, the gifts have to be moving and flowing and you have to be attuned and you have to be ready uh, for God to use you in the gifts at any moment. And that's how the glory of God is really shown, right? So you, you have all these different responses and ways that we feel like in denominational Protestantism, we have all these different ways that people feel like the glory of God is revealed or is realized. And this is absolutely no different than the conversation that is being had within Judaism in the first century. And that's what I want to, I want you to understand. And it, it, it's not, this conversation is not about which way is right or wrong. That's not what the, the, the end result of this conversation should be. The conversation is about how we think about things and how we process things. And to see that this struggle that we're having today goes all the way back. It, it's something that was going on in Yeshua's day which is really, really important. So you have the religious triangle. I'm sorry, I'm kind of preaching. I don't mean to, but um, you have the religious triangle, you know, Capernaum, uh, Bethsaida, Gennesar, all, all these Chorazin, uh, uh, all these cities. And if we read through the Gospels and we read them carefully and we notice where Yeshua is and what he's doing, we get a really, really interesting insight. 
I'll just tell you this. I personally, while I don't believe necessarily that Yeshua aligned completely with any certain uh, response or sect of Judaism in his day, I do find it really interesting that Yeshua spends most of his time in the Galilee and that he comes to Yerushalayim for feasts and, you know, for special occasions and things. But he's in the Galilee. He's not with the Sadducees in the temple. Um, one, the Bema podcast that I referenced uh, many, many times, Bema's Discipleship, uh, Marty Solomon on the Bema podcast says, and I think he got this from someone else, but he says that Yeshua spends three and, you know, three and a half years with the, the Pharisees. And yeah, there's a lot of turmoil, and there's a lot of arguing, and there's a, you know, and, and you could argue that a couple times they try to kill him, but they also, a couple times, they actually try to save him. And he spends three and a half years of his life with this community. He goes down to Jerusalem, and within one week, the Sadducees have killed him. Now, some of you are going to say, well, the, the, uh, the Romans killed him. Well, we can have that conversation. So we have Yeshua living in the Galilee, doing most of his ministry in the Galilee. My personal feeling is that if Yeshua aligned with a Jewish sect, a response, he was most likely Pharisee. Now, I know maybe some of you have heard that before and not really sure how that worked. Some of you have never heard it before and you're about to turn me off. Don't turn me off yet. Just wait. <laughs> I know for a lot of people, the Pharisees are the, they're the worst of the worst, Right. Because the gospel, don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be, you know, we have those statements, right? Of course. But when we understand uh, that most people, first of all, we lump the Pharisees and Sadducees together like they're the same group. M- most of us who have never studied this, up until a few years ago, I just, well, yeah, Sadducees and Pharisees, they're all the same thing. Well, no, they're not. Actually, the Pharisees and Sadducees are as opposite as conservative and liberal today. They're, they're as opposite as you could possibly get. Sadducees are very corrupt. You know, they're, they're, yes, they are the priests. And yes, they have a, a standing with God. They have a, a calling with God. Uh, a position, that they, yes. The Pharisees are very, very, very conservative. Very much about obedience. To the point, to the extreme, that because of their, their devotion to obedience to the text and to the tradition, the Pharisees actually cut people out. So if you if you were if you were a person who was in sin or you were a person who wasn't living up to the the Pharisaic ideal, then you would you would be out, you you would be out of the community, and and of course there is justification for this of course in the Torah right if somebody sins they're outside of the camp etc cetera, etc cetera, all the all these things so again just like the Essenes and just like the Zealots, the the Pharisees are finding uh, justification for their view in the text. And ladies and gentlemen, we do the same thing. We justify our view of Scripture and how, how the kingdom of God is supposed to be realized by picking out parts of Scripture. You can call it proof texting. You can call it interpretive you know, liberty. You can call it whatever you want. But we, we, if you see things, like for instance, I, lately I've really been um, on the whole tikkun olam thing. Our job is to, to take the baton that Messiah gave us and to get to repairing the world. Whereas 10 years ago, I thought, well, like, Yeshua was just going to do all that. 
I just got to be, you know, I just got to be humble and, and do what I got to do and study and, you know, worship and do that and stuff. And then Yeshua's going to take care of fixing everything. No, actually, he said, you go and do, I'm going, you go and do what I did and greater. So I will see scripture through that lens. And we all do it. If you say, oh, I don't do that. I'm sorry, you're lying to yourself. We all look at scripture through an interpretive lens. The Pharisees, the Essenes, the Zealots, even the Sadducees and Herodians are no different. They're going to see the way they want to see it or the way they, 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 it works for them. So you have kind of two main parts of the Pharisees, uh, two main uh, leaders, rabbinic leaders uh, of the Pharisees in Yeshua's day and pre-Yeshua. You have Rabbi Hillel and he, his, his Talmudim and his school was called Beit Hillel. And you have Rabbi Shammai, and his, uh, his group is called Beit Shammai. And these two Pharisaic rabbis, were, they, they saw Scripture much differently in, in a lot of ways, and, and they were always kind of at it and, and debating. And so just a quick little story. Many of you have heard this story before, but there's a Gentile that comes to uh, Rabbi Shammai, and he says, I want to learn Torah. I want to you know, convert. Uh, I want to be of the people of, of Israel. And so, and I think this is in, in Talmud. And so, like, Shammai makes him do this crazy thing. He's like, stand on one foot and recite Torah. Like, it's just this harsh, harsh thing. Uh, basically saying, like, no, nah, you, you're not, you know, I'm not doing this. And so he leaves all distraught and disgruntled, and he goes to Rabbi Hillel, to Beit Hillel. And he says, I want to learn Torah. And Hillel tells him, love God and love your neighbor. All the rest is commentary. Or something to that effect. Does that sound familiar at all? I mean, it almost sound like, and this is pre-Yeshua. This is pre-Yeshua being asked, what is the greatest commandment? And him saying, love God and love your neighbor. All the Torah and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So is Yeshua just, does he know this phrase? And he's just, you know, repeating something he's heard? Or was he a student of Beit Hillel? A lot of people think that he was. I don't really care. I don't have a dog in the fight. I just think it's very interesting for us to, to realize that the Pharisees and Sadducees are not the same people and that Yeshua was really closely entwined with the Pharisee culture, with the Pharisaic uh, leadership, and then the way that they understood Scripture. If you know anything about Judaism, even to this day this is true, um, devout Jews rarely, if ever, will argue with someone outside of their uh, you know, their group uh, outside of uh, their Havara, their study, you know, their, their study group outside of their community. Rarely. Those arguments are, are made, are, are kept inside the community. So I think it's really interesting. Just one passage we'll read really quickly. Matthew eleven twenty to 24. It says, Yeshua began to denounce the towns where most of his miracles has ha- had happened because they did not turn from their sins. Now, well, let's read it. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have turned long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon that they have judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to heaven? No, you will go down to Sheol. For the miracles done in you had been done in Sodom. It would have remained in this, to this day. Nevertheless, I tell you that it would be more bearable for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Wow. Okay, so let's go back to the first part of this because I want to just draw your attention to this. Yeshua denounces these towns, the ones we just talked about. He's denouncing the religious triangle, the Pharisaic triangle. And he says, 
where most of these towns, he denounces them because they did not turn from their sins. Now, when you read that, what do you think sins are? What are these sins? Well, they are people that are devoutly committed to obedience. So it's not adultery and debauchery and for it's not those things. What are these sins? Personally, I think these sins are the sins of, of exclusivity where they had heaped so much uh, legalistic obedience on the people that the people could not stand. They, they could not, there's no, there's, there's this idea of, uh, you know, of patience and grace is, is less emphasized in Pharisaic Judaism. Not that it's not there, it's just less emphasized. And so Yeshua is rebuking the very towns that he is teaching and doing miracles in. He's rebuking his own group because that's what Jewish, that's what Jews do. They, regroup, they rebuke their own people. They're not like us typically as Christians that go out and rebuke sinners, you know, outside of covenant. They're, they're, they have these in-house discussions. That's really, really important. So you have Yeshua rebuking these towns, right? And, and he, is, he is talking to his own, his own family, his own people. So it's important to realize, I heard Rico Cortez say this, and it completely just shocked my boots off. Something I never realized that rabbinic Judaism, modern day rabbinic Judaism comes from Pharisaic Judaism. So the Pharisees, even though most of them were not priests, they held the thing where like the Sadducees are not doing this priestly thing right. So we're going to, we're going to live like priests, not that they were, and they didn't think they were, but we're going to live the priestly standard, even though we're not priests, we're going to, we're going to be the obedient ones that the priests were called to be. Rabbinic Judaism comes from Pharisaic Judaism. And Pharisaic Judaism, Rabbinic Judaism, seeks to preserve the Levitical tradition. Even though they weren't Levites, they, were, they preserved the Levitical tradition. And so the reason why modern day Judaism looks and feels like it does is because it harkens back to that temple-centric uh, type of, of worship. And that's why you have the traditions and the ceremonies and, and all those things that are very liturgical and very traditional because it harkens back to preserving that. This is a fascinating conversation. I hope to see you guys uh, back again next week. Until then, shalom, shalom. Have a great week. 